Hi, I'm Frank Daly, and this is That Sounds Interesting podcast. Last year, I did a podcast with my brother, Peter Daly, about Stoicism, which included a discussion about Marcus Aurelius, emperor and Stoic philosopher. Today, Peter is back again for another discussion, this time about Roman history and civilization from the start of the reign of Augustus to the end of the empire in 476 AD. So welcome, Peter. It's great to have you back on my podcast. And this time we're recording it in Lisbon. Thank you, Frank. Uh, it's good to be back. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I should say before I start that my background is in business and technology and that I have absolutely no qualifications to be talking on this subject whatsoever. However, I do have an amateur interest in Roman history, which is derived from my interest in the Hellenistic philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism. So I'll do my best. It's a huge subject to cover in 30 minutes, but uh, we'll try and get through quite a lot of material. Thanks very much, Peter. And uh, even though you're very honest about um, that you're not a professional in this area, I know from that you have a vast knowledge of this particular topic. So let's kick off with uh, Augustus and how he came to power in, the Ro uh, in Rome. Yes, absolutely. But just, I'll just preface my remarks by talking about uh, giving a brief summary of what I'm going to say today. F firstly, I'm going to talk about Augustus, uh, who's the, the, one of the most important figures in European history. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about the Pax Romana up to 180 AD with the death of Marcus Aurelius. So it, my talk is really divided into two parts. First of all, the first two golden centuries, um, and then the, the disorder of the third century, the Christian Empire and the decline and the reasons for the decline. And then finally, I'll just uh, bring up some parallels with the possible future collapse of our own civilization. That sounds excellent, Peter. So getting back to Augustus then, coming to power. Uh, yes, uh, well, obviously after the death of Julius Caesar, uh, you know, people like Brutus and Cassius, who you may be familiar with from uh, studying the play Julius Caesar in school, uh, assumed, and the Republican side assumed, that the Senate would wrest back control. But uh, th that didn't happen and civil war ensued. I won't go into all of the history of it, but uh, the surprising thing was that Augustus, um, was, uh, as a, or Octavian as he was then, uh, was an adolescent whose uh, talent was recognised by Julius Caesar and he was adopted as his heir. So when Caesar's will was read out, people were surprised to find that he had been named as his heir. That gave Augustus huge legitimacy to, rep to represent the house of Caesar. And uh, so he was obviously able to raise an army. There was a second triumvirate at that stage then, involving Lepidus and Mark Antony. Of course, you may remember from the play, Mark Antony uh, seizing control of the mob and uh, seizing control of, of Rome. So an uneasy peace was maintained for some time, uh, but eventually uh, war broke out, Lepidus was sidelined, and it was really between Mark Antony. Now, at this stage, of course, Mark Antony had taken up with Cleopatra and that gave uh, Augustus a huge advantage in being able to present Cleopatra as a threat to traditional Roman values, as a type of evil oriental seductress 
who was uh, almost like something from the Odyssey, who, who, who was uh, leading Mark Antony astray. And if, of course, the day one, the, the Roman world would be subjected to the, to the wiles of an Oriental queen. So that he was a master of this type of propaganda. Eventually, it was a battle, a naval battle of Actium, and he emerged uh, triumphant and master of the known world in 31 BC. And th thereafter, then, that led to the sort of constitu first constitutional settlement of 27 BC. So how did Augustus uh, avoid a similar fate to uh, his adopted father, uh, uh, Julius Caesar? Well, it's a very good question. Um, th this is really cuts to the heart of his political genius. Caesar, of course, had just declared himself dictator for life, which was an invitation to be assassinated. He didn't last uh, m much more than a year, I think it was, if, if he did last a year. Uh, so the situation with Augustus was very much different. Uh, Augustus claimed in 27 BC to have restored the Republic. So mm -hmm. he played a very, he boxed very, very clever. He respected the Senate. Uh, many historians in the past uh, were of the view that uh, there was a sort of partnership between, he wasn't of course called an emperor in those days, he was called princeps. He was, he was the first among equals. But the reality was that he was an absolute ruler, but he shielded it uh, under the pretense, which everybody joined in pretend, pretending, of a partnership with the Senate. So he restored, he was a, a brilliant innovator at innovating in terms of new forms of dictatorial government, while at the same time honouring tradition and being highly conservative and looking back to Republican values. So uh, it, it, it was an absolutely brilliant stunt and uh, everybody wanted to join in with it because they were sick of civil war. Of course, and in fact, when you think of Roman history, you think of endless campaigns of war being waged across the whole Roman Empire. And, and, and I'm sure uh, people there obviously wanted peace. And I guess Pax Romana, which means peace in, in Rome, basically the Roman Empire, was the highlight of the whole period. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the arts and how they flourished during that period. Well, uh, yes, I do that. But, but just to explain that, that the, the way Augustus gradually took power is, is very interesting. He, he was ceded the governorship of a number of provinces. Not all the provinces. He wasn't appointed uh, master and ruler of the world. The, the Senate voted him certain powers. Then he was, at a later stage, he was voted the powers of a tribune uh, as, 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 as well as, you know, a consul. He was gradually voted more and more powers by the Senate and control of more and more territories. Also, of course, he was hugely wealthy. As his reign progressed and it became clear that we're in a new era, we, were to, we, entered, we really entered the Augustan period, which was a period of great flowering in the arts. We had Virgil, of course, with his immortal poetry about Aeneas, where he, uh, he comments that the gods had granted Rome empire without limit in time or space. Which a wonderful phrase. Yes, and indeed. Then, of course, there was, there was Horace, who was deeply interested by, by Epicureanism. He, he wrote, writes uh, very wonderful rural poetry about the joys of wine and the importance of carpe diem, etc., etc. Et there was also, of course, Ovid, uh, who was regarded uh, in Victorian times as almost pornographic and who fell out of favour due to Augustus's uh, very strict morals. So Augustus brought in a law to prevent adultery. So the, the, the Roman, one of the areas which, where Rome usually differs is their ideas of sex and marriage are enormously different to our own today. 
You might think because there was there's free license today, and, the, and, the, and there was to, to some extent in our imaginings of ancient Rome, that there was a lot in common, but there was actually nothing in common. The marriage was a completely different institution. Sex was allowed with, with slaves or, or lower class people, and it wasn't regarded as adultery. But to seduce an upper class uh, lady was an extremely serious offence and would lead to a court case uh, when, when it was outlawed. Now Ovid, of course, wasn't for any of this. He, his, he, was, he was strolling around the streets of Rome, eyeing up girls and writing, writing erotic poetry on the arts of love. And eventually he was, he was expelled. And to talking of which, uh, since I'm on this subject, Augustus had a great deal of trouble with his own daughters. As his daughter Julia grew up, uh, she uh, was certainly a right uh, goer, as they might say in northern England. <laughs> and basically, you know, perhaps we think of her as a sort of adopting Newcastle values, so that isn't too prejudicial to the north of England. But the, the point is, she engaged in a sex contest with a famous, famous prostitute and was reputed to have worn out more men than the prostitute. And then, according to historian Tom Holland, her taste also ran to dwarves. So the, the mind boggles. But she, was, she eventually uh, hooked up, if that's the right word, with a uh, relative of Mark Antony, which of course was a huge political threat because if, 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 if they were assassinated, they, it could have been the revenge of Mark Antony's line. Of course, and that made, kind of made... She, yeah, absolutely. So the guy was killed by Augustus and the, she was banished to an island where she, where she never got off again. And then to, to, to cap off her misfortunes, her own daughter, also called Julia, followed in her mother's promiscuous uh, footsteps and was in turn banished. Wow, okay, so you have to... I know to... I've diverged from the arts, but... I know, that's okay. It gives you... a period the raciness of the era. Yeah, and of course. So it was okay to do it, it just you didn't have to be discovered doing it. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, it, the, it wasn't categorised as adultery if it was a lower-class person. They, the Romans didn't have much of what we would think of as racism, because people, for instance, from a highly cultured and civilised, say, Arab, could rise to the position of emperor. His, his racial background was irrelevant, but what was really important was his class background. They weren't racist, but they were classist to an incredible extent. Okay, which had obviously the same restrictions that racism also uh, uh, causes. You know, obviously, well, well, it was a rigid, it, yes, it was a rigid case system. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just continuing on a little bit, um, I know Augustus suffered a terrible calamity so late in his career, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, yes, uh, basically this was, uh, this was basically a total disaster for him. Uh, the, he was the, 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 the legions were campaigning in uh, Germania or Germany and um, they were led astray by, by somebody who had a, a, a German who had become very cultured and educated in the Roman ways, but he turned traitor. Uh, I won't go into details of it, but uh, he led three legions into a trap in the Teutoburg forest where suddenly the barbarians appeared from the trees. It's as if uh, you can remember that scene at the start of uh, Gladiator. Of course, where, yeah. Where Maximus says, unleash hell. Well, it, it, instead of the, 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 the fiery cannons raining down on the barbarians, it was the other way around. The, the barbarians unleashed hell through the forest. The Roman legions couldn't form into their typical defensive formation and three whole legions were wiped out. It, the, the effect of it almost drove Augustus mad with grief and he was more or less banging his head off the palace walls for a long time. 
And I guess you could consider it in some ways that was kind of foreshadowing how so much later, how the end of the Roman era actually occurred, also with the Visigoths coming down and actually uh, destroying parts of the Yes, empire. yes, yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it was Germany. Um, okay, so um, just continuing on now, who, f who uh, followed on after Augustus? Well, it, it was Tiberius. He was a, he was a great general, and uh, there were a number of other people that Augustus would have would have preferred to, to succeed him, but uh, they died, you know. Uh, sometimes, you know, people dying of disease or uh, early was, was not unknown in those days. It was, it was quite common. So a number of potential suitors, he was forced to pick Tiberius. Uh, Tiberius was in many ways, um, there's been a lot of controversy about him. He decided to exile himself away from the, from the court to live on the island of Capri. Of course, in his absence, his, uh, his lieutenant, Sejanus, uh, assumed dictatorial power and it was engaged in many abuses and eventually word was um, was smuggled into uh, to, to, to Tiberius and um, uh, Sejanus was condemned and, and uh, torn apart by the mob then he, he was then followed by uh, a monster Caligula and by uh, following that there was Claudius and then eventually Nero and that was the end of the uh, the Julio Claudian line. I mean, one of the things that, without going into all of their their cruelties and and, and uh, you know pers personal yeah. peccadillos, the impression you would get from reading Suetonius, who was the great historian of this period, is that uh, you know th there was nothing but this type of activity going on, and the the, the whole empire was 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 in chaos. But despite these these things going on at the top, uh, the empire was 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 well run was expanding. So can you describe a little bit about the empire and how it was governed and the role of the cities? Yes, uh, the remarkable thing about uh, the, the Roman Empire in its, in its early uh, period, during what we call the Pax Romana, uh, was uh, how light government was and how formal it was. There, the, 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 the emperor received numerous partitions on, on all sorts of, uh, sorts of matters. So if we think of it in terms of departments of government today, the emperor, emperor was responsible for justice and he was responsible for foreign affairs. So he received embassies from, from various countries, various petitions and all the rest of it. So he, he, had a, he had a heavy workload in terms of the foreign policy side. But if you look at the other departments of government, say uh, the economy, uh, the education, uh, healthcare, uh, even the you know, provision of civic services like fire brigades and so on, all these thing, things were never dealt with in a systematic way in terms of having f permanent departments. They were always done on a, on, a, on a very ad hoc manner. Their understanding of economics or economic instruments was, was, was extremely primitive, as was, of course, their accounting system. They had no, no understanding of, of accountancy. So, and so it's amazing then if you think that such a huge empire was created without those key Yes, because there was an extraordinary degree there was an extraordinary degree of decentralization. What you had is you had, you had a very small number of, of civil servants, if you, like, if you want to call them that. There were a small number of, of, of advisors and all the rest of it. But the key to the, the way in which it was organized was that cities were self-governing. So if you look at Gaul, say, there was a constellation of different cities. Leon was one of the most powerful and biggest. It, it and its surrounding areas were self-governing. The local elite was co-opted into 
the into the values, the civilization, the the laws, and, and the justice system of, of Rome. Uh, they they didn't have the power to raise armies or tax, but they were they were they they, they were. Um, you know, to a large extent, self-governing. Oh, the, the, so, so, so to a certain degree, Peter, it's like that they had a franchise from Rome. Yes. Okay, but they were a federation of independent, semi-independent uh, regions collected under the banner of of Rome. Well, the, the, that's correct, but the, the, they weren't to an extent. They, the, they weren't. They didn't have too much independence, but they were balanced between between a high degree of autonomy and and um, being be, being part of of the empire. That's true. Okay, so that 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 was maybe contributed a lot to the success of and the longevity of uh, the Roman Empire because of that, because of the decentralization. Absolutely, it, it wasn't like the Russian Empire in, in the nineteenth century. It, it it wasn't held down by force of arms. The the, the Rome didn't occupy its, its empire and hold it against against hostile populations. The if there was any hostility, it was dealt with by by the local. Um, the, the local governor of, of that province or that, that particular city. But uh, you could see parallels with, um, with the EU in some ways. If you think about it, all independent states grouped together under the EU banner. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But no, no, no real emperor at the core. Yeah, yeah, yes, there's no emperor as yet, you know. <laughs> as yet. Good comment, Peter. Okay, so um, just continuing on a little bit, okay, so um, uh, uh, from the actual role of the, uh, the, you know, governing and the role of the cities. After the Flavian dynasty, we had the, um, we had five good emperors. So maybe you can talk about that period for a while. Yes, after after the death of Nero, there was, it was the year of the four emperors and various uh, generalists. Oh, I thought it was five, okay. Was no, no, four, no, four. no, this is the, year, the one year, 69 AD, of the year of four emperors in one year, okay. each one for just a few months. It eventually settled down with Vespasian, a brilliant uh, general, uh, who, who founded the Flavian dynasty. So there were three emperors after that. And then it moved on to the, what's called the Antonine uh, Empire, co after, called after Antoninus Pius. So th this is, this is uh, the real apex of, uh, of Roman uh, power and civilization and wealth. Uh, the, the emperors were Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius. Now, just a, Hadrian was um, quite different than Trajan. Trajan was, was still expanding the empire. Uh, the, by the time of Hadrian, however, it, it had reached its maximum extent. It extended from, from the border of Scotland to Arabia. Of course, and we think of the Hadrian's Wall actually as a border on Scotland. Yes. They obviously decided that the uh, Scottish were too wild and untamable to bother going up there. Uh, uh, well, yes, yes, that's right. There, there was nothing there. There was no resources. To... Or Ireland, for that matter. They weren't bothered actually trying to, to uh, uh, conquer Ireland. Maybe there was nothing. To well, the, the, the name Hibernia, meaning, meaning freezing, probably put them off. As, and in my view, the island should have been left uninhabitable as a prison colony. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's a separate issue. The, 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 the point... So uh, I'll kick off talking about a couple of the emperors. I uh, can't go through each of the five good emperors. Uh, but they were called that because it was a time of very wise rule. Um, three of the five were adopted and, and uh, the process of succession was secured. Hadrian was a very interesting character, uh, hugely erudite and uh, skilled at the arts. In fact, he competed with one of the great architects who was responsible for the Pantheon in Rome. Uh, he was also gay and uh, his lover, uh, was, famous lover was Antinous, 
who was a youth from uh, Egypt. Uh, he went overboard on a boat down the Nile and uh, there's, there's controversy over whether it was self-sacrifice or an accident or whatever. But uh, Hadrian was heartbroken and uh, the youth was deified and temples to, uh, to, to him, Antinous as he was called, were, were raised uh, throughout the empire. Then skipping over Antinous Pius, who was a, who was a very wise ruler and who uh, was the adoptive father of Marcus Aurelius and whose, whose uh, character and moral strengths are praised greatly uh, by Marcus in his meditations. Um, this takes us to Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he spent a lot of his um, later career fighting on on the, on the edge of the empire, uh, in against the Germans or uh, the, the tribes in uh, on the other side of the Danube. And um, meanwhile, he was scribbling away in his tent, as is seen in the in the film Gladiator. So his his meditations were really thoughts to himself. They weren't intended for publication, but they have been a great source of illumination for uh, for people. For Stoicism. Yeah, for Stoicism ever since. However, despite his brilliance and wiseness as, as an emperor, uh, you could fault him greatly for, for letting his son Commodus, who was, a, who was a, an evil uh, young man, uh, succeed him. And uh, Commodus uh, really uh, led to uh, the decline of the the, the, the latter period. So Peter, what about the crisis in the Roman Empire in the third century? Okay, so uh, what happened is after the death of Marcus Aurelius in 180, there was a, a brief uh, dynasty, the Severan dynasty, uh, but when one of those emperors was murdered early into the third century, uh, it led to a period of chaos uh, which carried on for I think about 50 or 60 years. First of all, there were attacks from the Persians or Parthians as they were called in the east who were a ferocious fighting force and at the same time there were numerous civil wars, uh, short-lived emperors lasting a few months or a few years uh, and uh, of course in the middle of all this there was uh, renewed plague and with various other economic problems. So the, the empire almost fell apart in the third century but at the end of the third century a wise emperor called Diocletian took over and uh, reorganized the empire. He initially split it into two, the east and the west um, and um, that didn't last, but it was uh, it was instituted in a more formal way uh, later, uh, at, at the end of the uh, fourth century. Uh, but um, he did bring in many many reforms, and then leading to Constantine. So, um, what about the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christianity? Yes, this 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 process began under 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 Constantine. I think the chaos of the of the third century led to a big increase, probably in conversions. But one factor that was very influential, of course, was the the higher reproductive rate of Christians, and the fact that they they uh, they, they cared for sick people, for sick children. Uh, that they didn't expose unwanted. Uh, babies uh, to, to, to kill them in, in the way in which infanticide was, was widely practiced, almost like a type of uh, abortion after, uh, after birth in, 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 the, in the pagan world. So but all of these factors led to a big increase in the number of Christians. But at the same time, they, they, they weren't by any means the majority. Uh, Constantine converted uh, for a number of reasons, but um, partly political. And of course, he, he couldn't help meddling in Christian dogma. And um, then later emperors also uh, became Christian. Christian. Christianity became the state religion, except for a period in the middle of the fourth century when Julian the Apostate tried to roll things back and to bring back the, the ancient gods, but uh, it didn't stick. 
And then uh, it was too late, I guess, really at that stage because it, it was so widely spread. Uh, uh, yes, that, that, that's exactly right. But it, 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 was, it was too well entrenched. But one of the, the famous historian Gibbon wrote in the 18th century, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, a massive authoritative work. And he attributed its, the fall to the rise of Christianity uh, as resources and talent were diverted away from the state into the service of the church. Uh, you know, instead of uh, trying to beautify their cities, they would be pursuing bishoprics uh, and and uh, monasteries uh, and donating money to the church and so on. So the church was a type of state within the state. Now, modern historians regard that as far too simplistic. There are many other reasons for for the of course. But if you think if you think about it right, it's a state of mind that actually what that actually changed the empire at the end of the day. Uh, yes, that's very true. It, 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 the the, the later empire is hugely different in terms. It's very difficult for us to get our head around it. Um, it's if, if you look recently, I was looking at something on a, um, a Roman history a group on Facebook, and it showed a sculpture of one of the emperors in in the fourth century. It was a crude representation, like a dwarf, uh, and with, with with a misshapen head and large eyes. And it, it seemed to be a type of uh, abstract symbolism. Uh, that they had abandoned the classical ideals of beauty here. Now, whether it was a case of losing the skills to produce or the interest to produce beautiful classical sculpture, or whether they, like Picasso, who was capable of great classical art, they decided to you know, engage in, in some type of new brutalism. I, I simply don't know. The, the, the civilization was, well, the Christian civilization was different. And one of the things that the, that the modern historians emphasize is the continuity between the late Roman period. There wasn't any sudden collapse where the barbarians break in and everything falls apart. Roman civilization, Roman law continued to operate, whether it was a Goth king in charge or not. The Senate continued to operate for a very considerable time. People continued to be educated in, in the Roman classics. So, so the Roman civilization carried on for, for a quite, quite a long period. The, the Goth generals were, were the real power over uh, tr throughout the period from, from about 410 onwards when uh, Alaric uh, sacked Rome and then withdrew. So the, the, the empire at that stage had, 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 had um, started to break up. Uh, North Africa was, was broke off from Gaul was already a separate kingdom. And uh, people were aware of the fact that the change had occurred, but they still felt Roman, they acted Roman, they lived in a, in a Roman manner. Uh, so what really happened was that a different type of Roman civilization had developed if you look at the, the castellations on the, on, the, on the fortifications, if you look at the, the dress, the chainmail on the, on the troops, if you look at the art, uh, it's, it, it's all, uh, if you look at the fact that out in the countryside, uh, serfdom had already begun as power and wealth were concentrated in huge estates and small landowners were forced to act as serfs. Like the Middle Ages were starting and it was a, it was a transition from, from Rome in, into the Middle Ages. It wasn't a sudden break. So what about the Eastern side of the Roman Empire? The Eastern Roman Empire uh, resulted from the official split in 395 between the Western and Roman Empire. And at the time, people would speak about, after that time, people would speak about both governments, understanding that there were two emperors, but one effectively uh, one um, Roman civilization crossing both of them. One was Greek. Uh, it later became Orthodox, and the, the Western one was, was Christian, or what would eventually become Catholic, and uh, spoke Latin. Now, over time, the uh, Eastern Empire uh, maintained its independence and uh, became what we call uh, Byzantium. 
it, it didn't fall until 1453. So effectively, the end of the Roman Empire is only about 600 years ago. It continued until it was overthrown by the Ottomans in 1453. And one of the very interesting things was that when it did fall, the mantle of Rome, which was passed from Rome to Constantinople, was, was taken by, by Moscow or, or, or Russia. Effectively, they did saw, saw themselves then as the successor to the, the Roman Empire. And the word Tsar means Caesar. So in the, the Byzantine um, Empire, there was a very close identification between church and state, something that didn't exist in the West. Uh, so that explains the, the support, for instance, of Patriarch Kirill for Putin's war. State and church are united in a, in a very strong way within the orthodox religion and it's impossible to understand Russia today without uh, understanding its roots back into the split of the two sides of the Roman Empire. But why did Rome fall? Well there, there, there are many reasons. You, you, you could say that Christianity played one of the roles but that's uh, I think a, a minor role. Uh, it, it, it was very corrupt. Uh, the later, later empire was not that light-handed, light-touch government of the early empire. It was filled with bureaucrats with ever more refined titles and grades. But the, the, um, the, the emperor was approached through a series of veils and, and also other high officials. The more veils that you had to pass through mysteriously, like a Persian king, uh, the, the, the higher your status. It, 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 has become, uh, it has become very different, very bureaucratic. Uh, the, ex the exaction of taxes was, was unbearable. People f felt the removal of the dead hand of the Roman state as a liberation, not, not as something to, to bemoan. Okay, so there were also ecological and uh, uh, pandemic causes. There was a number of plagues um, and there were um, various changes in climate uh, which re reduced agricultural production. The currency became debased. And of course, one thing which is hugely important, Western Europe, unlike the Eastern Roman Empire, wasn't geographically capable of being defended. The pressure of Huns from, from Asia forced uh, the various Goth tribes across the borders, pushing them ahead, and ultimately the sheer force of numbers. I think that's a, an important parallel for us to think about. If one million uh, Syrian refugees uh, were a problem in 2015 for Angela Merkel, wait until a billion African refugees are trying to get into Europe due to climate change. So ultimately, I believe the. I think it's quite likely, not inevitable, but it's quite likely that 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 uh, European European uh, society will collapse again due to the pressure, the simply the, the movement of peoples, which is irresistible. It happens in every civilization. The, the movements of large groups of people is almost like a force of nature. So why would we view the Roman Empire as relevant today? Well, it, I think it, it sets an awful lot of parallels. If, if uh, someone like Trump, or, or possibly somebody much better than Trump, who's more interested in governing than golf, well, is to take over, it's fairly clear that person will follow the playbook of Augustus. And uh, we can have an awful lot to learn about, about how dictatorship can wield its power, shield it in a fantasy or pretense of democracy from what Augustus did. Some future American dictator might, for instance, uh, certainly would not abolish the US Constitution or the Senate, but would claim to have restored its power in the way Augustus did. In terms in terms of the, the final collapse of, of, the, of the empire, I think uh, 
is 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 uh, certainly um, is something that we need to think about uh, in terms of uh, the coming ecological collapse, which uh, can, can potentially affect us. Uh, and um, there's a variety of factors towards the end of the Roman Empire, which I think are very instructive for today. So finally, in an immortal quote from the Life of Brian film, what did the Romans ever do for us? Very briefly, uh, uh, civil engineering, medicine, law, a uh, um, whole, uh, whole series of uh, government, uh, politics. Uh, th there, was a, there was a famous, it's not just the Romans, but also the Greeks. There was a famous um, situation where Melina Mercuri, a, fa a famous actress of, of Greek origin, uh, was asked to speak at, I think it was an EU event. She said, I'm going to start off with a few words of Greek. And there was a, a general groan. And then she said, politics, mathematics, drama, theatre. And she kept repeating a whole series of, of fundamental yes. concepts which, which we all owe to the Greeks and, and, and uh, ultimately through the Romans to, to us. So um, th there's a whole series of things that they, they gave us. Um, but I think probably the most important thing which is often overlooked is their religion. We think of Christianity as being something we received direct from the apostles uh, and from the Jews. Uh, th that isn't the case. Uh, we would never be Christian if Rome, for instance, had adopted um, the cult of Mithras and uh, we'd all been involved in the sacrifice of bulls and taking showers in their blood. As, uh, th Fortunately, <laughs> that wasn't the case. No, but the, 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 the point is that uh, what the Romans gave us was their religion, which was uh, highly influential uh, for, for 2,000 years. In a certain sense, um, the Catholic Church in particular, and Christianity in general, is a continuation of the empire by other means. The Catholic Church is empire without limit in time or space, although perhaps it's now reaching that limit. <laughs> It, 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 the Roman history and civilization and the Greco-Roman uh, civilization is one of the three bedrocks of our civilization, the other two being Christianity and the Enlightenment and Scientific Revolution. That's super, Peter, and it has given me a huge understanding of the Roman Empire and its influence on today. Thanks very much for being on my podcast. You're welcome, Frank. We could have been stardust, same world but without us, something Looking for something